0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. What does it mean to be indispensable? The man we're talking about today worked for Ken Clark and Norman Lamont. He was in number 10 during the early years of the Blair Premiership. He helped see Gordon Brown through the financial crisis. David Cameron said we were so lucky to have him and Theresa May described him as the greatest public servant of our time. I've even read comparisons to Thomas Cromwell, and yet the name of Jeremy Haywood, who died in 2018, was unknown to most of the public. With me to talk about him is Suzanne Haywood, his widow, who's co-authored his memoirs in a new book called What Does Jeremy Think? Hello, Suzanne. Welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me on today. The great irony of the book's title is that while everyone wanted to know what Jeremy thought, like all civil servants, his true political views had to be a completely private matter. Am I right in saying that you don't even know how he voted?
1: No, I don't. He was always very, very discreet about how he voted. But I think as is very, very clear in the book, um, it was clear to all the politicians he worked with what he thought of individual policy areas, and how he thought things should be implemented, but not his overall political views.
0: Most accounts of political history are written through a party lens. So we get backstabbing and score settling. And quite often, we actually get a quite Dull narrative because the urgency and the excitement that drives the political intrigue is all over and it's all in the past. This is a completely different book. There's a lot of policy wrangling, but it's perfectly understandable even if you don't understand the finer points of the exchange rate mechanism, for example. Jeremy Haywood was in a unique position to see how euro scepticism gradually took hold of the UK. Do you think he anticipated early on when he was advising Norman Lamont while we were crashing out of the euro? Uh, ERM and the the UK was uh, struggling, beginning to struggle with its relationship with Europe. How all that would shake out in British
1: politics? It's a very interesting question. And when I talk to him about it, and it is a theme that goes all the way through the book, because the book begins at Black Wednesday. Before Black Wednesday, there's a little bit of a kind of, uh, we, we go backwards a little bit in time to the negotiation of the Maastricht Treaty, which Jeremy was also involved in doing. And in retrospect, of course, Jeremy could trace some of the things that led to the rise in Euroscepticism uh, within the UK all the way back to there. But of course, he would be the first to say that he had no idea where that would lead to. What he could pinpoint, kind of looking back in time, was some of the things that, that really, uh, you know, started to kind of create it or create momentum behind Euroscepticism. And some of that was Black Wednesday. And certainly that made him somewhat cautious when the when the kind of later EMU debate uh, came up. And some of them were things like the fact that uh, although there was quite a lot of very good work that was done around the benefits of immigration, a lot of that was never really publicized. Uh, and that's brought out in the book as well. So I think as, as you read through the book, you'll see some of the, the things that he certainly believed led to a rise in Euroscepticism, although I don't think he would claim that he knew where that was going to go.
0: On the day after the EU referendum, he correctly predicted that Northern Ireland would be the most serious problem, most serious obstacle for Brexit. How did he find that last two years in Downing Street after the vote,
1: before he died? It's very interesting. The There's a wonderful moment where he takes a step back and looks at the Brexit negotiations and he says, this is going to be a more difficult negotiation than even the, the Maastricht negotiations that I've done in the past. It's going to be more difficult financially than the financial crisis that I dealt with. And in a way, he felt that the Brexit negotiations were almost the culmination of his career. He'd almost been in training to try and help the UK get the best possible result out of Brexit for the entire of his civil service career. And I think what he felt in those last two years was incredible frustration uh, because, of course, as the negotiations continued, his health became worse and worse, and he found it increasingly hard to support the Prime Minister. But he kept working, as is also clear uh, in the book, right up until the very end, almost until the last moment when he could send an email uh, or send a text, he kept on working because he was very, very determined to try and support Theresa May as best he possibly could through those, those negotiations.
0: Part of being a civil servant is that you sometimes have to make bad policies or policies that you think are bad, you have to make those happen. There are a few points during the book when you sense that Jeremy knew that was happening. I think, the Health and Social Care Bill back in the uh, early 2010s, for example. What was the mindset that got him through at times like that?
1: So Jeremy fundamentally believed that the role of the civil service is to advise ministers. And ministers are the ones who have been elected by the people to take decisions. So... Once he had made it very clear to a minister what he thought of a policy, and he tried to lay out a number of different ways forward and hopefully what he thought was the best way of making a policy work, it absolutely was the choice of ministers what they then wanted to do. It's the responsibility of the civil service to make sure that all of those options are laid out very clearly. And that ministers always knew the consequences of the different decisions that they were taking. But it's not the role of the civil service, which is an unelected body, to then decide which ones to take. So I think sometimes, inevitably, he was human. um, He would feel frustrated um, that a decision was taken that he thought was not the best way forward. But he never fought back against that. Once the decision was taken, the decision was taken. And that's the reason, that's how our democracy works. And I think he believed very fundamentally in the different roles of the, that the parties would play.
0: Jeremy was often called on to intermediate between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in their more tumultuous moments.
1: How did he manage that? Well, it's he. It's very interesting how that worked. I mean, it, it became, when he first moved into Downing Street, and he, uh, which was relatively early in the uh, Blair premiership, the relationship between Blair and Brown was quite good. And, and there were very, very regular meetings between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And as time went on, that relationship, of course, as we all know, uh, deteriorated. But what Jeremy then did was he and Ed Balls, uh, who was at the time uh, Gordon Brown's principal political advisor, his special advisor, they actually worked very well together. I mean, there was a lot of conflict around individual policies, but as people, they worked very well together and they respected each other uh, very highly. And they worked out that the best way to make sure that decisions were made in in a good way was for them to meet informally to try and get decisions made knowing what Gordon Brown wanted and knowing what Tony Blair wanted and then go back to their principles and make sure that they were happy with it. And what's amusing about this is that, you know, the only place where they could meet, which was, if you like, kind of neutral territory, was a place called Churchill's Cafe on Whitehall, which was a not particularly wonderful cafe, Uh, on Whitehall that served absolutely terrible coffee on Formica kind of tables. But a lot of government decisions were at least hammered out there to be taken back then to the Treasury and to to Downing Street. And it it actually worked very well. Uh, Maybe it's not how one would want it to be set up, but it certainly worked very well.
0: And he clearly would never have allowed himself to favour one p m over another in what he did, but I got the sense in the book that he had a particularly good and productive relationship with Gordon Brown. Would you agree with that?
1: he did I mean Jeremy would never you know discriminate between the different prime ministers that he worked for, and he was hugely respectful of all the different prime ministers he worked for and in fact, you know when I sat down with him he was at great pains to kind of take me through the different strengths that the different prime ministers had and how much he respected them. But I think in, with Gordon Brown in particular, you know, they faced a massive crisis, the financial crisis, and they had to work incredibly closely together to get through that crisis. And I think they, they created a very close working relationship as they went through that time.
0: What policy was he most proud of helping to bring about during the whole of his career, would you say?
1: Well, I think actually it's the one that we've just spoken about. I mean, I think of all the things that Jeremy was involved in, the one that he found up until Brexit, I should say, up until Brexit, the one that he found the most challenging was the financial crisis. And I don't think I realized at the time as I lived through it, I don't think I realized how close to the edge we actually came during that period, how close we came to a, a total banking collapse. And it was only when I was writing the book and I went around and I talked to, I mean, in the course of writing the book, I talked to almost 200 eyewitnesses, so not just Jeremy, but many, many others. It was only as I wrote that that I realized how close uh, the UK banking system came to the edge. Uh, And when you read the story, you can see how they were actually creating policies in the moment uh, to try and stop that from happening at speed in a in a situation where they were facing a crisis that the you know the country has never faced a, a crisis like that before and i think he was immensely proud of, of what the civil service did uh, to support uh gordon brown through that period and
0: was there a policy that he would have liked to have
1: been identified
0: closely with something apart from dealing with the the uh, financial crisis one that really spoke to what he believed in
1: So the things, the two things that he really believed in and became real passions of his, particularly towards the end of his career, when he was, you know, I mean, he started as as a young maverick challenging the system, and he always challenged the system all the way through his career. But towards the end of his career, when he was cabinet secretary and head of the civil service and running this huge machine, there were two things that he became very passionate about. And one was innovating public policy. So how do you make sure that public policy is not just, you know, what people make up sitting at their desk day to day, but actually you get people involved from the, the kind of wider society in it, that you're really kind of innovative in how you think about it, you bring data into it. So that kind of innovation in public policy he was passionate about and did a lot of work on. And then the other thing he was passionate about was diversity. How do we get a much wider range of people into the public sector who can really reflect the broader British society, and therefore make public policy that really matters and works across the UK. Those were the two things that he really felt were important. And I think he felt that he made a lot of difference on those. But had he been able to continue going longer, I think he could have done even more.
0: And of course, he died in November 2018, before Theresa May was ousted and Boris Johnson arrived in Downing Street. Do you think he would have survived the early days of the Johnson regime with Dominic Cummings in charge? I mean, various civil servants made a dignified exit as the full extent of Cummings' animosity towards them became clear. Do you think he would have been one of them or would he have stuck around?
1: I think he absolutely would have stuck around if they wanted him to stick around. I mean, he worked with many different prime ministers, with many different special advisers. And actually, he welcomed the special advisers who challenged the system. I describe in the story a lot about how we worked, for example, with Steve Hilton, who was somebody else who came in and challenged the system very fundamentally and wanted the civil service to look very different. And Jeremy welcomed that. I mean, he believed that the civil service, despite its strengths and despite him being one of its greatest champions, absolutely needed to change. I mean, it's a big institution. If it's not challenged, it's not going to evolve and it's not going to be you know, suitable to uh, support future uh, governments. So he would absolutely have stuck around and, and worked with Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's team. I think he would have been delighted uh, to be able to do that.
0: And since then, of course, we've had the pandemic and the huge challenge that presented to the civil service and to Downing Street and so on. Do you sometimes think, how would Jeremy have done this when you, when you hear policy announcements being made and Johnson standing up and saying things? Do you sometimes think, oh, Jeremy would have done that differently?
1: I I regret the fact that he's not here, and I know that he would massively regret the fact that he has not been here over the last year uh, to help in any way that he could have helped when we've been facing such an enormous challenge uh, as a country. But I think he would be very cautious about throwing stones from a distance. I mean, as, as I realised as I was writing this book, it's incredibly difficult when you're sitting in the middle of government to manage a crisis, particularly a crisis like this one, which is uh, on an issue that we've never dealt with before with a with a virus that started off with we really really didn't understand. I think there's things in the way in which this government has approached this that Jeremy would have loved. As I as I mentioned before, he, he loved open policymaking. He loved the idea of bringing people from outside of government into government to make policy. So he would have loved the SAGE group. He would have loved the way the vaccines task force was, was kind of set up. And I think he, though, I, but I think he would have been the first to be thinking about, well, what went wrong? You know, what were the things that we didn't do right? Why was it so hard? to sort out PPE and why do we do so much better on vaccines and what can we learn from this as we go forward? I, by the way, have kind of set up something called the Hayward Prize for Public Policy Innovation, part of the kind of charity I set up in his name. And we've got almost 1,400 suggestions from across the UK submitted through the Hayward Foundation for how we make public policy better. And that is the sort of thing that Jeremy would love, which is let's now take this as a moment to think about how we really make uh, public policy better uh, in this country.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you about that anyway, because um, I work for the School of Public Policy at the LSE, So it's an issue that's quite close to my heart. And I am right in thinking, aren't I, that anyone can enter this competition, not just people with professional interest in the subject, They can anybody can put forward a policy suggestion.
1: Absolutely, yes. So we have a top prize of £25,000 for the best uh, the best answer, but we 're giving prizes for really good questions of public policy that need to be solved and really good answers uh, to questions and uh, Yes, anyone can uh, can enter it 's all available on the kind of Haywood Foundation website. Haywood Foundation is the charity that I set up in jeremy 's name, and as i say i 've been kind of overwhelmed by the response to this, um, and uh, we have a fantastic judging panel including Michael Gove uh, from the Cabinet Office and Deb Balls and many, many others who are going to kind of help us sift through these answers and hopefully come up with some exciting things that we can do in the future as we come out of this pandemic.
0: And finally, I wanted to ask you, it was a few days before Jerry died when he was awarded the Knight's Grand Cross, I think. He already had a knighthood and the ceremony had to take place in hospital because by that time he was so so ill. And afterwards, you write that he told you this is for the civil service. I want you to say how proud I was to be their leader. And that's the kind of language it struck me that people often use to talk about their association with the armed forces, but not usually for the civil service. Can you tell us just a bit more about what the service meant to him and what a powerful role it played in his life?
1: It was an incredible moment, I have to say. We were all gathered in the hospital, and sadly, it was very, very close to the end. It was—they were almost the last thing. It was almost the last thing that Jeremy said to me, actually, because after that moment when he received that award, I wheeled him back upstairs, and he um, got him back into bed, and he pretty much slept after that. Um, so it almost were—they almost were his last words. And I think they really sum up the fact that, you know, it's his immense pride in the civil service. I mean, the civil service, for me, is a bit of an unsung institution. You know, it's very easy standing outside for us all to criticise what it doesn't do. But it's full of people who, and hopefully this kind of comes across in the book, people who are dedicating their lives to try to make uh, public policy work. They don't always get it right. Uh, It can be bureaucratic. It can be slow. All of these things that we say about the civil service are certainly true. But it is full of people who are desperately trying to make things better and are often dealing with things uh, as I was saying before, often dealing with things that have never been kind of dealt with before. And he was just incredibly proud of the civil service and, and really proud to have dedicated his life to it. And I think for those to be almost his last words really summed up his pride in the service, which, as you say, you know, it's very equivalent to how somebody would would talk about um, a military, you know, part of the military. But, but it, it absolutely was what was in his mind at that moment in time.
0: You must miss him very much. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: What Does Jeremy Think is published by William Collins, and it's out now. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Patreon. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker Daily. And until then, keep safe. Uh The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.